0: Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 53 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by Legacy Specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. As ever, the best way to listen to every episode and keep up to date with every release is to make sure you are following or subscribed to GCP on your podcast app. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, CastBox. You can even ask your smart speaker to play Global Captive podcast and they will do so or you know wherever else you get your podcasts from you can also listen on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website just go to the episodes tab and the full back archive is there for you to explore Later in the episode, we have a never heard before discussion between myself, Danielle Izuki, managing director of Sigard Rook, the Swiss domiciled captive owned by Sipem, and Ghislaine Lacam, a director of analytics at AM Best Ratings Services. You will hear in that chat uh, what impact the pandemic has had directly on Sipem's captive and what ramifications AM Best has had to look at for in relation to their broader captive ratings and the pandemic. That conversation comes from a. GCP short release earlier this year with AM Best and Sigurd Rook, and there is a link to the full episode in the show notes. But on with today's show and the topic of directors and officers insurance has come up with increasing frequency on the podcast over the past 12 months. We have had Marsh Captive Solutions talking about how captives can and are increasingly being used to address the distressed line. While captive owners from Horizon, a transportation company in Australia, to DNA Genetics, a Dutch-Canadian cannabis company, have discussed the line and their approach or not to insuring it through the captive on the podcast. In recent weeks uh, as well, and I think it is fair to say there is quite a bit of mixed opinion on the role captives can or should play with regards to side A, B, and or C uh, of DNO coverage. I will put links to those episodes I just mentioned in the show notes as well, so do check those out. But right now, I am delighted to say we are joined by a man known well, particularly to the European captive market, and also very much embedded in today's world of DNO having launched Rising Edge Earlier this year, a boutique underwriting agency focused on directors and officers liability insurance and risk management. So, my old friend Philippe Giroux, CEO of Rising Edge, welcome onto the Global Captive Podcast. Good afternoon, Richard. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really good to have you on. I think uh, we have met a few times over the last couple of years, Philippe. But it's way overdue that you uh, you come onto GCP with your long background in captives. And for those who may not have known or come across you before, Philippe. Can you tell us a bit about that background and the different ways you have worked with captives in your career, both as a risk manager and for commercial insurers?
1: Yeah, it, it, actually, you're, you're right. You know, the um, captives somehow have uh, always been present in my professional life. From the moment I started working at an oil and gas company, where I was responsible for two captives as a risk manager, um, to later on, uh, for instance, when I joined AIG as a risk finance underwriter. Um, I structured many transactions for the benefit of captives, such as uh, loss portfolio transfers, redomiciliation transactions, and uh, structured aggregate stop-loss programs, for instance. But also like during my time at AIG and, and then at Excel uh, later, axa Excel, I had responsibilities for the design and implementation of global captive uh, fronting programs. So yes, I, I suppose so, um, indeed throughout my professional life, I've always been exposed to working with captives and always enjoyed it a lot. Um, they're really strategic in the risk financing thinking of companies um, and therefore they're really at, at the heart of um, what risk managers do for their, for their companies. And, and then since 2016, um, I had the privilege of becoming a non-exec director of a world leading facility management companies captive, um, adding a different perspective to previous um, experiences. So I think it's fair to say that uh, indeed, you know, uh, Captive have been part and parcel of my career and professional life.
0: Yeah, I was really really pleased to hear when you did get that appointment on the on the Dublin captive a few years ago that that you had that and and that people like you were being utilized in those roles because we hear so much about captives uh, increasingly looking for more experienced uh, boards and maybe more diversified um kind of thought brought to boards and that really uh, properly independent role uh, and perspective. What in terms of what you've been doing uh, on that board since 2016? Kind of, what new perspectives of, of captors has that given you? Has it given you a, a different way of thinking about how captors are used? Firstly, it gave me a lot of regrets of, uh, regarding the, the past. You know, because <laughs>
1: yeah. when uh, when I was in charge of the captors as, as a risk manager, as I mentioned before, you know, I, I remember that sometimes, you know, as, as a risk manager. You, you, I mean I certainly felt at times you know iso- isolated uh, during these board meetings you know surrounded by very senior but non insurance executives and I was then the only uh, member of the board with insurance experience and and, and with hindsight, you know what I wish uh, we had done is that uh, we had added like some external insurance professionals to to sit on our board, if anything frankly you know to kind of like uh, at times you know validate to the point that i was um uh, I was making so bringing that kind of like a external uh, seniority to really provide that additional peace of mind to 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 the board that hey what we're doing is actually um, the right thing right so with that experience in mind you know what I've always tried to do in, in my role as as an NED is is to provide that industry experience perspective you know both from a governance and from an underwriting standpoint and and, and I mentioned here just I mean governance as well as uh, underwriting because you know having worked with captives for the past twenty years. I have to say that one of the biggest change I've observed is um, the uh, how the, the regulatory framework has changed. You know, 20 years ago, I think in terms of like the the, the, the nagging point in in discussions was really about like the tax treatment. Right? That, that was kind of really kind of like a yeah. a, a very frequent. Uh, 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 I mean, the central point of conversation outside the kind of like the risk that the, the entity was taking, and and tax clearly is is still a key topic. But I think now it's more the kind of the overall governance of a captive decision making that has become much more critical and, and, and central. So as an NED, you know, I have to say that the new perspective I have gained is, uh, and, and, and I'll say this in all modesty, frankly, you know, it's the importance for captives to have qualified and active NEDs on, on, on their board. I mean, I think the a captive board really benefits from having a connected NED who understands the market, particularly given how quickly things are changing. Um, so from my personal experience as an NED, I, I do actually spend uh, a few days per quarter in my role, you know, so not only about attending board meetings, but also in between board meetings, you know, having uh, uh, ad hoc um, calls on specific decisions that that need to be made and, and also providing that, that market insight, additional market insight. Of course, there are two things to take into account. One, it is time consuming. So it's one thing to kind of say, oh, let's get like a um, a, an executive insurance um, to, to the board. I mean, everybody has roles, jobs, right? I mean, so um, so if you do it seriously, it actually does take time. And, and the second aspect is, of course, if you're an active insurance executive, you have to make sure that you deal with like potential conflict of interest in an adequate way. And, and to, to, to complete the answer to, to your question, I think from a personal I and mean, really personal standpoint, to me, it, it gives me really a great insight and reminds me all the time you know, how clients make decisions, how they decide to actually take or transfer risk, and, and reminds me basically what, what is the, the position the risk manager is facing within the organization trying to kind of convince uh, what uh, his or her um, risk financing vision is for, for, for the group. So basically, it, it, it keeps my thumb on the pulse.
0: Yeah, no, I'm sure it does, and that's yeah, quite a comprehensive answer. And I think your point there is really is really spot on that captives, you know, can only benefit from having that kind of independent expertise as as some other level of oversight or as an extra resource to lean on. And and if I'm honest, there is there is actually no shortage of those people available. And I would say that through my various hats with AirMic and 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 the Global Captive Podcast, after. Inquiries from captive owners asking me of, or, or sorry, prospective captive owners asking me of where they should go or who should they should speak to and if they want to engage in a feasibility study. The most common email I get from people asking for more information is people who would like to uh, have a, a place or, or think they have something to offer on on captive boards. So there are people out there if captives are looking to add that independent expertise. There is no shortage of that talent. I just don't know at the moment how much, you know, how much captives are being proactive. In adding those independent non-executive directors to their boards on both sides of the pond and and offshore, I think that it's it's a blind spot that some captives are good at, but many many captives have not filled yet.
1: If, if I can maybe add a quick point on this, you mm. know, Richard, because you're, you're 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 right. You know, I think, um and then you have horses for courses, right? I mean, in terms of like what what NED do you want to add to to, to your captive, but a captive board. But one thing for sure is. Uh, it has, I would say maybe a bit sadly, but it has been driven more by the local regulators' expectation of having NEDs as the corporate governance rather than necessarily saying, you know what, I mean, uh, we're all kind of like in the business of uh, uh, manufacturing widgets. So it would be good to maybe have an uh, insurance professional on, uh, on the board of the captive in addition to the risk manager. Um, it, it's more kind of like the... Uh, uh, the former that has been driving, kind of having NEDs on captive boards. Some jurisdictions, you'll see very few NEDs on captive boards, and I think uh, I think they're missing out. It's it's part of the diversity, I, I would say, in a certain way of, of of a captive board to to benefit from having an NED.
2: Yeah,
0: no, we're absolutely on the same page on that, and I, I couldn't agree more. So, let's let's talk then about about Rising Edge. Sure, you launched Rising Edge at the, at the very start of twenty twenty one, an underwriting agency focusing on on DNO insurance and risk management. As we've said, yeah, you know, we've spoken a lot about uh, DNO on GCP over the, over the past twelve months. If I compare last the last twelve months to the first twelve months of the pod. Came up very rarely uh, in 2019 and in 2020 and 2021. It, it's been almost every episode we've we've touched on it because it is such a distressed market. What what did, why did you decide, Philippe, to enter the DNO market and and what types of of business profiles do you hope to be uh, serving and working with? Thanks, Richard. We decided to
1: enter the DNO market because we felt it was um, underserved and subject to indiscriminate market reaction following what has been frankly atrocious underwriting performance across the market and 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 when I say we here by the way is it's you um, brightman my sidekick and uh, and and I so what rising edge brings to the market um, uh, is a fresh start without legacies uh, as a business we carry no legacy on the balance sheet no legacy on our systems and no legacy on our mindset so you, you may wonder what 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 this kind of means. So if I can maybe briefly expand on on, on these three points, I mean, no legacy on the balance sheet means we do not have to catch up on past losses. Our insurance capital provider is a reinsurer recently set up, and that enables us to take a prospective view on the exposures and on the pricing required without looking back at, uh, I would say, past stigmas. But that's a privilege. Right? And the privilege of having no balance sheet liabilities uh, comes with responsibilities. And, and that, these responsibilities uh, is about underwriting discipline that need to be maintained and an absolute focus on adding value to our clients and to provide the best in class service to, to our brokers. Now, I also mentioned uh, no legacy on our systems. And that's really important because it impacts on how we service our clients and how we as a business have a, a streamlined underwriting system for our underwriters. So what that really means is um, our underwriters don't spend time in data entry, jumping from one system to another, trying to remember what is the password for the third system they need to access to. No, it, it is a streamlined end-to-end system that we were um, able to build and, and develop from scratch. And therefore, in a the single system, we have all the MI, the third party data connections, etc., etc. And that uh, the, at the end of the day, it means that our underwriters can really focus purely on underwriting. And we, so we, we did a bit of analytics, analysis there. And we reckon that thanks to that operating model, we're probably two to three times more effective than in a conventional environment. So uh, you may ask, I mean, what, what are we going to do with all that time that we are freeing up? Well, we're not going to write more accounts. No, we're not a quote shop. What we want to do with the, the time that we've been able to free up is to, to allocate that time across four buckets. I mean, that's how I think of it, right? Uh, the first one um, is actually to spend time on more time on each and every underwriting file, you know, to really go a bit deeper on each uh, of these um, uh, instances. Secondly, is to spend more time with our clients, simply to, to listen and to share information. And, and I think I'll come back to it in a, in a minute if you give me the opportunity. It, it's also to spend uh, more time on portfolio analytics you know, it's one thing to kind of like underwrite um, uh, each and every race, but ultimately you are building a portfolio, and you really need to understand that portfolio and spot trends. And 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 the last, uh, the the fourth element of or the fourth bucket, which is, I mean, r- really close personally because I think as a as, a, as a CEO of this business, you know, w- one of my duties really is to 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 help the team to to develop, and um and I want to kind of like allocate some of that freed up time on meaningful personal development for uh, each and every of our staff. So that, that's kind of like in terms of like uh, having uh, no legacy on our system, what that, that enables us to, to do. And, um, and the third and last point was regarding no legacy on the mindsets. So what does that mean? It means that we want to be best in class when it comes to servicing our brokers and our clients. We want to be able to make an underwriting assessment by looking forward, not in the rear view mirror. We are a data led underwriting business. And data is by nature historical right it's 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 the data is is there you don't create that data itself but the art of underwriting is to convert that data into decision making so as i said before you know not having a balance sheet legacy is a privilege and we're making sure that we're not taking this privilege for granted we're not repeating mistakes of the past either Uh, we get data from the past and we make our decisions by looking ahead. And our objective, you know, in terms of mindset, you know, how we want to operate and engage with, particularly with our, with our clients, is we want to be able to deliver more valuable insights to our clients and share our experience, share our knowledge, share access to information to help them better manage their risk. I'll, I'll give you one example. I think thanks to our strong underwriting and claim expertise, and also by being a niche DNO underwriting boutique, we think we can have very confidential conversations with clients to help them prepare or react to their change of strategy and work with the advisors to mitigate risks that such change can have on their uh, DNO risks. It's really positioning ourselves as a trusted partner to, to our clients.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's really interesting to hear hear that explanation and particularly, Philippe, what you say there about not having that legacy. And it's one of the reasons why I'm I'm kind of surprised we haven't seen... I know we have seen a lot of startups uh, recently, and, and the commercial market is not my strong point. But it's why I'm surprised we haven't seen more entrance into the commercial market of you know, some of the large tech companies. We've seen a little bit of it, uh, but that 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 not having that kind of a legacy weighing you down, and those old systems, and as you say, multiple systems weighing you down. I imagine that's something you must be quite excited about, Philippe, to, to kind of start with a completely fresh slate. No,
1: absolutely. You know, it's, um, I think one has to recognize that uh, nowadays, the ability to develop bespoke systems is, is incredibly uh, agile and, and, and flexible. You know, when you think that, you know, I would say five months ago, uh, all we had was basically a a spreadsheet, uh, some uh, box and arrows on the paperboard, and and that's it. And here we are, you know, having launched uh, trading on uh, May 24th and able to transact end-to-end submissions, connecting with third-party data to connect directly a lot of underwriting information that we would have otherwise Bored to death, our clients and brokers asking them for that information, which is like publicly available. So we just get it in sucked in straight into our system, and be able to actually focus more on the qualitative underwriting information that uh, clients and brokers want to uh, to share with us. To take an example, like I mean, market cap, turnover. That information is available. So why take time to, from clients and brokers to enter that into a proposal form to send it to us to retype into a system to possibly along the way get it wrong, you know, uh, adding a zero and getting the wrong currency? Uh, and we've all all underwriters have seen this in, in all legacy systems happening. No, all that information comes directly from us from trust, trusted third-party data, and and our underwriter can really focus again on the qualitative aspect of that um, of that underwriting. So yes, I'm probably giving you a much too long answer, but it just shows, you know how excited we are with what we have uh, we we have developed.
0: Yeah, and I'm excited, I'm excited for you on the project Philippe. and after in the second half of this episode after the break, we will I'll be really looking forward to asking you exactly what you think, what role Captus can play and what role that possibly Rise Edge could could play a Captus in this area. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by RQ, the award winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. RQ can provide a wide range of solutions and has A rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the sellers' requirement, whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to RQ. So before we are back with Philippe, I thought it would be good to share with you some extra content recorded for a GCP short with AM Best earlier this year. In this 8-minute conversation, Daniele Zucchi, Managing Director of Cigard Rook, a Swiss domiciled captive owned by Italian multinational Sipem, and Gislaine Lacam, a director of analytics at AM Best Rating Services, discussed the impact of the pandemic on captives and what AM Best has had to look out for and be mindful of in their own rating process. This is new content because it was additional to the full GCP short, which you can find a link to in the show notes or on the AM Best Friends of the podcast page on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website. Let, let's shift tack a little bit to the, the pandemic and COVID-19, uh, Jalan. Um, w- what impact has, has the pandemic had on on AM best rated uh, European captives over the past twelve to, to eighteen months.
3: Yeah, it, not uh, to the elephant in the room, COVID nineteen. Right, I, mean, I think we, we've talked a lot about COVID nineteen in the last year or so, and, and clearly we've seen significant financial market volatility, economic slowdown, and that that has impacted negatively quite a large number of insurers and reinsurers, notably through increased claims activity. But what we've seen for the European captives that we rate is that it's probably been less of an issue. And I think that's probably, that probably ties back to two main reasons. The first one on the uh, investment side uh, is that the European captives that we rate, uh, in most instances, have a conservative investment strategy. So we see that they usually have low investment risk and um, they hold primarily uh, bonds, cash, short-term bonds. And cash uh, so they have not experienced uh, the losses stemming from uh, the financial market market volatility that some other players on the market may have experienced because of their exposure to equities. Uh, usually equities only account for a very small share of the overall asset allocation of the European captive suite we, uh, we rate. The second element on the underwriting side is that we have uh, not seen uh, significant underwriting losses related to the pandemic for the European captives we write. We've seen some of them uh, reporting lower premium volumes because of, uh, you know, a slowdown of the parents' activity, having an impact on the on their top line. But usually, it's something that's gone uh, hand in hand with a reduction in claims for the captive. Maybe. Um, Maybe I, I would mention a case in particular, and it, you know, it ties back to the assessment, uh, the of of the impact the credit worthiness of the parent can have on the credit worthiness of a captive. And we've we've had a case where we've seen a, a negative rating action taken on the on the captive, and that that resulted from applying drug because the credit worthiness of Or this captive's parent had reduced as a result of COVID 19. So you you see here COVID 19 impacting a corporate and having a knock on effect on the captive's rating.
0: Yeah, no, it is. And one one of the other themes that have come out from from the pandemic in regards to captives specifically. I've heard about over the last 12 months is about the captives being used by their parents particularly if they have got a large capital surplus of releasing capital back to the parents to support them with things such as cash flow in possibly difficult economic times during the pandemic and there's there's some interesting statistics from Marsh um, on this on on these numbers would this be something that AM Best would want to be keeping a track of because obviously you don't want to see the captive just chucking lots of money back to the parent what would be uh, kind of what, how would I and best go about kind of measuring that and, and monitoring that activity?
3: Yeah, I, I think you are put on when you put things in context of the parents' needs versus the sort of captives' needs. And of course, it's something we would look at, right? I think just going back to the to our methodology, um, you know, our analysis, one of the cornerstones of our analysis is the analysis of the balance sheet strengths. And, you know, we look at the balance sheet strengths not only today, but also what do we expect the balancing strengths to to be like in the medium term, the next two three years? And that's the reason why we look at the operating performance and business profile, because to some extent, those are leading indicators of where the balancing strengths is heading to. So obviously, the the dividend policy, the dividend expectations is is a key element when it comes to determining the you know where the balancing strengths is is heading to. So uh, we would look at it, and we would look at it not only in terms of uh, how it's expected to impact the solvency level of the the captive, but also from you know what it means in the in the, in in terms of the role of the captives vis-à-vis its parent, and to what extent uh, what, what what signal does it does it give us in terms of uh, level of support uh, from the the parent to the captive. And this is something that could influence the assessment of the lift or, or drag building block, right? I mean, obviously, if there are onerous dividends that are paid, it's something that could be perceived as a sign of you know, lack of support from the parent or the fact that the parent needs the money to, to meet their own obligations. And if it's detrimental to the captive's grade worthiness, you know, we would view that negatively and as potential for maybe applying drag if uh, the, the parent has a lower grade quality than the captive. If the parent has a, you know, is, is uh, stronger from a grade standpoint, again, onerous dividend payment that would impact the great worthiness of the captive could be a, a rationale for reducing the lift provided to the captive or maybe not providing lift at all. So it doesn't mean that any dividend payment would be viewed negatively, but I think it's very important to to think of the consequences of uh, a dividend payment and and ensure that from a risk management standpoint, from a, a capital uh, standpoint for for the captive the captive is 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 um so happy with with what's happening because we, we would certainly uh keep track of any dividend payments and we would you know factor that into our analysis for sure
0: and uh daniele what kind of direct impact if any has has the pandemic had on on your captive's performance over the past 12 months or so
2: well, if I if I look at the financial statement of 2020, financial results, let's say um, 2020 was uh, in the 12-year history of Sigurd the second best uh, year in terms of net profit. So I should say that the impact of the pandemic on Sigurd was actually a good one. Um, we registered uh, less claims uh, across all lines of business uh, this. We believe it's due to the slowing down of the group activities, so less activities, uh, less operational risk exposed, uh, so less claims. Um, the same happened on the employee benefit side, probably due to uh, lockdown restrictions preventing people to visit uh, uh, doctors. So all in all, I would consider the pandemic as uh, a factor of the hard market. Uh, and because, as you correctly said, what I said in the first uh, in the first instance, uh, actually the, the captive is somehow developing uh, itself, uh, not necessarily from the point of view of collecting additional premiums, not that. I mean, the benefit of the captive can come for sure in. Uh, uh, new lines, uh, expanding limits, and, uh, um, and other uh, ventures. So to, to reply to your question, we were all uh, somehow braced and expecting for catastrophes. But actually, as I said, uh, it was indeed uh, uh, the second best year in, uh, in Sigur history. Uh, 21 may look a bit different. We have seen now coming, uh, specifically on the employee benefit side, the claims that probably uh, simply moved uh, uh, or shift uh, in uh, in time but let's say let's uh, let's leave uh, this discussion then probably for the next year and see uh, how the pandemic impacted then uh, 2021
0: So, welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Philippe Giroux, CEO of Rising Edge. I mentioned earlier, Philippe, that there is quite a mixed opinion on on what role captives can play, if any, regarding DNO coverage for their their parents or their sponsors. What what is your view on that? You know, can can captives, do you think, support their parents directly on DNO?
1: Well, the short answer is yes and no, uh, but I suspect <laughs> you may want to hear a bit more from me on that. Yeah. Okay, so I'll give you a bit more. So look, f- f- from my days as, as a risk manager, you know, er- er- going way back in, in my career, but the, the DNO placement was the most sensitive of the placements uh, because it, it deals with the personal liability assets of the executives and entities of, of the company. So, w- when it comes to Discover, you know, I, I mean, everybody has a different view and approach to it, but, but my view has always been that as a risk manager, I was not going to bargain on pricing, but rather I wanted the safety of knowing that the underwriter I was using was a, uh, available to me at any time to provide support. It was always a partnership that mattered most. Um, I did not nickel and dime on the terms, you know, and in return, I expected full support at times of, of claims. You know, I think you know DNO. I mean, the essence of DNO insurance has always been different to other lines of business, such as a property, other I mean liability lines, marine, trade credit, etc. A DNO policy, and we need to really to remind ourselves of that. I mean, the DNO policy, at the heart of it, protects the personal liability and personal assets of our executives. So my view on the importance of DNO has never changed. I mean, even now in the current market where there has been significant price correction, ultimately, if you take all of it into consideration, and even if you are to multiply prices by two, three, or even 10 times, that increase, and I might be provocative here, but that increase is not that material in the wider context of the total cost of risk of a large corporate of course, it's painful to pay more or far more for something you used to pay less or far less for, but it's worth it um, for, for something this critical to a business and, and to keep the executives you want on uh, on, on your board. So, I mean, and, and I know I may not kind of like create a majority of, uh, of followers on this, you know, but I, I have to say, I do find it quite surprising that parent companies will want to use Captus for their DNO coverage. And I would say, in particular, Side A. So, so here, I don't think that I, I need, but tell me if, if you want me to, but to, to go back and kind of like you know, on some technicalities of the um, of, of DNO, you know, uh, because you had like a brilliant podcast on that. And, and I must particularly uh, comment to you on 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 the one that you had with uh, Beth uh, Thurston and Lorraine Stack uh, because they did a fantastic job in, the, in a recent podcast to explain yeah. um, DNO. It was really, I mean, something that should be kind of taped and replayed to actually directors and officers to explain to them, hey, this is what DNO insurance is. So uh, Beth, Lorraine, that was br- uh, beautiful. And in fact, I may kind of like trying to, to remember how they presented that, but it was, we need just to remember it in, in, in super short, right? I mean, side A, it's kind of like the insurance indemnification directly to the DNOs, right? I mean, so it's almost that they, the, the, the insurance company will effectively indemnify the DNOs directly for the, 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 the cost that they incurred out of a, a claim made against them. Uh, side B is the company reimbursement element. Uh, that's, that's when the company is allowed to indemnify its directors and has them for then insurance to pay for it, right? So the company pays, indemnifies, and then gets reimbursed by the insurance company. And side C is a so-called entity side, which pays for claims brought directly against the company. So I want to focus here really on the side A aspect, because I think this is where most of the debate is. Yeah, yeah. And and we need to remember, who, 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 I mean, who is to benefit from side A? And that's the directors and officers as individuals. You know, with side A, you're not protecting the balance sheet or the P&L of a business. That's what the side B and C do, right? What side A does is, is effectively, and, and, for, and for putting it that way, I guess, but. It, with side A, you actually keep the roof on the head of the DNOs and their families, right? You provide them the peace of mind and security that their assets are protected, and I think that that that's really critical, and should we should not lose sight of it. You know, the beneficiary of that core side A element of a DNO policy are the directors and officers. So to try to bring that back into a captive or any other innovative structure does bring, I mean, uncertainty on how that coverage and that policy will respond. So. Personally, uh, you know, I I do not see what what the benefits will ultimately be for the directors and officers that this policy is trying to protect. If it's about trying to save money, that benefits the company, not the directors. Now, that would be at a very different point, you know, if you look at side B or C, and particularly side C. Because in these cases, I would say, yes, I do see the benefit Captive can play in helping to finance this, particularly on the attritional and lower level of the program where the market is particularly difficult. But as I said, you know, with regard to using capital for site A, I do have personal reservations about the objective and how it personally benefits the, the directors and offices of, um, of the company
0: yeah really interesting philippe and i certainly echo what you say regarding the the, the gcp short we did with marsh uh, lorraine and beth at marsh last year and i will put the link to that episode for those who have missed it in the episode show notes because it is a really good explanation and it does really does talk through the differences of side a b and c and then why they may or may not be suitable to go into into the captive so i do recommend people go back to to listen to that and of course. I won't explain it in too much detail because you can listen to that episode. But on the side A side, they are very much talking about not using your existing single parent captive, but potentially using a, a separate cell company, which is you know owned by, in their case, Marsh, to do that. So you kind of take away that side A and then you, you maybe put that side B and C in the captive. So bearing that in mind, Philippe, do you envisage or can you see Rising Edge working along, when when you're working with corporates that have a captive's, um, would you be interested, and can you see yourself working with them, with their captive, to provide additional capacity to to the corporate and on DNO? Yeah.
1: Look, I mean, if I can maybe just really briefly come back to to, to the structures, just to to really make my my point uh, clear. You know, I do not dispute the fact that you know uh, one can be creative, you know, and on paper, yeah. you know, uh, with innovative structures and wording, you know, it seems that it works but it's a little bit like asking to, to a pilot when you go onto, onto a plane saying, are you able to fly this plane? And the pilot says, um, I think I can. That is not really the, the comfort you want out of your pilot when you go onto a plane. So having a kind of structured uh, side aid DNO policy, when you say to the directors and officers and NEDs of your board saying, is that policy gonna respond to the personal claim I may incur? And the answer is that, uh, we think it can, we think it will. Sorry, but that's just not good enough, you know. So, and that's why my, my strong recommendation that stick to the traditional risk transfer solution, you know, when it comes to side A. Be as innovative as you want when it comes to side B and side C in terms of optimizing the risk financing program for your company. And to answer your question, of course, and for, for these, we're more than welcome the opportunity of of discussing. How we can actually support these um, uh, the, the, these captive programs, but you know, I fully appreciate that my view will raise eyebrows and, and possibly result in, in some calls and, and emails expressing a different view <laughs> to me.
0: All contacts, good contact, Philippe. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what,
1: uh, Richard. I mean, that's also what Rising Edge is is all about. You know, we will and will continue telling our clients what we believe is in their best interest.
0: Yeah. And I think it is an interesting debate. And and as I said, I won't go into all the different instances, but through at least 10 to 15 captive owners that have spoken to us about this topic, even just for a 30 seconds or a couple of minutes on episodes, I do hear very varied opinions. Generally, the, the opinion is very much side A won't go in the captive, side B and C possibly, and some people say none of it. Thank you very much. Because um, it can be just too volatile. I think um, Nigel Jones at Horizon uh, from Australia a few a few months back said that that they just not interested in putting any of it in the captive. So it, it is divided opinion, and and it's interesting to see. I think you know from the spinning it very positively for the captive market, Philippe. It's it's nice to see captives you know be in the conversation when 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 these lines are discussed because traditionally not much side B and C, let alone A. I'd go into captives at all.
1: I, I fully agree with you, Richard. I mean, and I think, you know, in terms of like, particularly when you look at, you know, how Site C, you know, that entity cover has evolved over time, which is becoming, has become almost a catch-all of, of, of corporate liabilities, right? In terms of like, oh, something went wrong, uh, no other policy is responding to it. Though. Well, let's take a look at the, the Site C of the DNO policy to respond to it. And, and I think in, in order to capture a place, you know, where to risk finance s- some of these risks or all of these kind of like... Um, Additional risk that that companies are, are facing and bringing the captive back in kind of really its kind of like role of a strategic risk financing tool for the organization. Of course, we need to upload and support that, you know. And, and as I said before, you know, I spent so much time on captive and building and structuring programs to help uh, clients uh, ensure like uh, non standard risk, you know, difficult risk to ensure. Is, um, it, it's really pleasing to see that the captors are, are making a comeback as kind of like a, a, a critical strategic tools and in, in risk financing strategies. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, Philippe, it's been fantastic to have you on. And pl- please do keep in contact with us and uh, keep us updated. And uh, as we talked about Marsh already, they off- they they released their kind of annual landscape report every year. I think we're expecting it in September this year. I expect we'll see a small increase in those figures on the DNO side. I think we'll see more of it in next year's report and it be interesting to see how that, uh, that develops and Philippe, let's have you on the podcast again in a year's time to see how that first year anniversary of, of Rising Edge is, is treating you and thank you to Philippe and all other contributors to this episode of the global captive podcast for more information on philippe and other episodes please do visit globalcaptivepodcast.com captive whereas there's loads of information on all of our guests previous episodes and of our friends of the podcast as well so philippe thank you so much it's great to have finally had you on the pod thank you richard it was great to be with you stay safe stay well and see you next time captives